Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The World in 10, your daily update on the biggest stories from around the world, as seen through the eyes of the Times of London. I'm Rebecca Myers. And I'm Eleanor Shearwood. Today we'll be hearing about a mysterious drug in the Middle East and a sport most people have never even heard of. But let's start by looking at a side of the Ukraine war you might not have considered. What is life like for a Russian soldier right now? It's a question that very few people in the West know the answer to. But Sunday Times journalist Jack Clover has been trying to find out. We spoke to Jack about his extraordinary story this week behind the front lines. I think one of the untold kind of mysteries of this war is what drives the Russian soldier, like what is in his mind, um, what motivates him. Is it love for the motherland? Um, Is it coercion or is it money? Um, And with this story... Uh, I thought the great way to go into it was this video I saw a week or so ago, which was beamed around the world after the Ukrainian government released uh, this video from the front line outside Bakhmut of a soldier, um, which we now know to be called Ruslan, uh, giving himself up to a Ukrainian drone uh, that then leads him across no man's land uh, and through a barrage of fire from his own lines, uh, to give himself up to Ukrainian forces. Ruslan was a, a prison officer in Russia. A, a Russian activist told me that there's a choice that people are given when they're conscripted, uh, which is Vaina which is like war or prison. And he knew how brutal prison was because he used to be a prison officer, so he chose war. He was sent down to the Kharkiv area. At first they said he was going to be military police, but um, instead he was then sort of in the middle of the night in May, taken down to outside Bakhmut, handed over to a Wagner commander, which, remember, until a few months ago, the Russian government didn't acknowledge that Wagner existed. And now these conscripts were handed over to a Wagner commander, basically sent over the top saying, go and seize that trench. His two other soldiers with him, who he's basically just met, one called Victor, one called Dmitry, all three are attacked by drones. Both Victor and Dmitry have their legs taken out by the drones. They both end up, um, one shooting themselves, the other, uh, other one blowing themselves up with their own grenade because they know no one is going to drag them back uh, and no one is going to come and save them. And it's at this point that Ruslan decides, I know that there, at least there's going to be a human behind that drone. I'll give it a go. Official Russian government figures show that more... Uh, court cases have been opened against Russian soldiers uh, leaving their units um, in the first three months of this year or until May than in the entirety of 2022. We also hear from the Ukrainian government and their hotline called I Want to Live, uh, where Russian soldiers can ring up, uh, that they've had 3,000 kind of points of contact in April alone, which is up on previous months. And they say this is because the Russian soldiers have been hearing about this coming offensive and that they want to 
get out. It really is a brilliant story from Jack and you can read it yourself on the Times website. When you think of Syrian exports, you might think of olive oil, nuts and spices. What probably doesn't come to mind is amphetamines, or to be precise, Captagon. It's a powerful, addictive drug that comes in pill form and contains the compound phenthylin. This drug is now Syria's most valuable export, with pills reaching countries across the Middle East, and people from workers on 20-hour shifts to school students to the wealthy middle classes all taking it. Now, Louise Callahan's The Times Middle East correspondent, and she's got this story and actually joins us in the studio now. Louise, one thing I'm really interested to know is how you came across this story. Well, I first heard of Captagon in 2016. I was in Iraq covering the battle to oust ISIS from Mosul and I was in this machine gun nest. It had just been abandoned by by ISIS fighters a few days before and on the floor then there were all these packs of pills and bags of pills and the Iraqi soldiers I was with told me it was Captagon. And ever since then, it's become so much more widespread and it's become this multi-billion dollar drug industry. So what does this tell us more widely about the state of the Syrian economy? The Assad regime makes billions of dollars from sales of Captagon. It completely outstrips any legitimate uh, exports that Syria has, you know, like olive oil or nothing. Like, and it, it just nothing registers compared to how much money they're making from the Captagon trade. So they need to make money. Um, and then it's also a very important political bargaining chip. So Assad has for years been trying to come back in from the cold. You know, he's a pariah state. But now he's been readmitted back into the Arab League. You know, he has, he has a few cards in his hand, but but one of the really important negotiating chips is, I think, Captagon, because like so many other Arab countries are facing this flood of drugs which are, you know, destroying their societies, and they want to fight them. To do that, they need Assad on side. So he is using that as a, as a tool in order to get money and get concessions uh, from, from other Arab states. So he's essentially saying that if they cooperate with him, he can clamp down on the trade because it's his trade, it's, it's his production. That's what analysts have said, yeah. And, you know, it's exactly the kind of transactional behaviour that Assad engages in. He he has not really budged an inch this whole time. You know, 12 years of war, people have been trying to force Assad to, uh, to you know, toe the line on and stop killing his own people. And he hasn't done that. He hasn't done any of it. And he's turned Syria into a narco state. And now he's sort of gone to the Arab League and said well, you know, I, I want to come back and, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay me for it. I think that's the, that's the impression that we get. Well, the piece is amazing and it's up now on the Times website. Louise, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you're hearing that sound, you're probably also seeing It's a Match come up on your phone screen. And if you're not too sure what it is, you've likely not contributed to the three billion daily swipes on the dating app Tinder. It's reported celebrities including Zac Efron, Katy Perry and Lindsay Lohan have though. That's right. It's the biggest app for 18 to 25 year olds. And there's someone new in charge of it. The Times has been speaking to Faye Isataluno, who says it's changed for that age group dramatically since the app was founded back in 2012. Yeah, it's so interesting because the piece in The Times features research that the company's done, which shows that over three quarters of Gen Z users reply to their crush within half an hour. 
and 40% within five minutes. Faye says they don't play games and would rather cut to the chase. It's a really wide-ranging interview on the website and I think the quote that stood out to me was that she's already anticipating the day that her nine-year-old daughter can join the app when she's <laughs> in her teens, obviously. Yeah. Um, and she's told the Times that she does think it's moved on from that boozy hookup culture it's, it's probably quite well associated with um, and hopes that by then there'll be no strict definition of what love looks like or how it works and it will be an inclusive place for her daughters. Yeah, I suppose how the app's used is kind of a reflection of how dating's also also transforming more widely. A nice quote to end on is maybe Tinder's not here to tell people who to love, how to love and what that looks like. If we were to ask you what sport this was, what would you think? I bet the answer wouldn't be cheese rolling. It certainly wouldn't. (laughs) And if you're not sure what that is, don't worry, neither was I. (laughs) It's pretty much exactly what it says on the tin. In Gloucester, a nine-pound round of the region's famous cheese is rolled from the very top of a hill and competitors chase it down to the bottom. (laughs) If you win, you get not only glory but also cheese, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And it happens every year, so you've got lots of chances. And one man who's got that glory that we were talking about in spades is Chris Anderson. Now, he's won the race a record 23 times. So actually, maybe you wouldn't have that much of a chance. Um, (laughs) He grew up in the village where it's held, which means he's got a great strategy because on this hill, he knows where all the dips and holes are so he can avoid them. Not everyone does, though, and it sounds like he doesn't get it right every single time no. he once bruised his kidney apparently after soaring 15 meters through the air and landing on his back ouch injuries aside though he's still the biggest expert out there so we asked him what his top tips would be for any budding cheese rollers go up there with an open mind and confidence and basically when you're at the top of the hill you just need to really just go for it run and try to just let your body go loose avoid other people and if you can then just sprint the last 10 20 meters and you'll be just fine and that's it for today's world in 10 thank you for joining us